Welcome to What is Goat? My name is John Severnapolillo. I'm joined, as always, by my co-host, Jamie Fry. This is the modern... <laughs> Wait, what the fuck is that? <laughs> uh, this is how uh, We're Only In It for the Money begins. <laughs> this is the Frank Zappa episode oh, uh, of What is Goat? Joe's Garage. This we have is... Evan O'Donnell. He's our Zappa guest. This Welcome, is Evan. The Central Scrutinizer. <laughs> how you doing? I'm doing good, man. How are you guys good. doing? Good. So Evan is, uh, not only is he the former guitar player of the Brooklyn What, uh, he is now making music and art that you can check out at grounddemons.org. He is also the only person we know who is a resident expert of Frank Zappa, which is what we're going to be talking about today. This is probably the most obscure thing we've done yet. Um, I don't know a ton about Frank Zappa. Zappa was active from the mid-60s to the early 90s. He was somebody famous for combining popular music, doo-wop, rock and roll from the 60s with avant-garde composition and fusion jazz. And basically, he's also best known for kind of being Weird Al before Weird Al, but maybe a thousand times more offensive. He, he, got, his, he, got, he got his biggest public recognition by being A, kind of a guitar shredder when that was really in style, and B, doing these long shows of comedy rock. I was a sharp social critic. Um, and so you are, without saying, uh, you're Zappa fan. Yeah, yeah. Especially, especially when I was in high school. You know, I was, I was, as, for all intents and purposes, a straight edge kid. And Zappa's famous for not doing any drugs, but his music is completely out there and bonkers. So for me, it was like a way of, it was like, shit, this is like a role model. You know, <laughs> it's like I don't have to be square if I don't, you know, get really fucked up all the time. So Zappa famously. Uh, chain smoked all day long and drank like nine co- pots of coffee a day. Yeah, this right? is also that's very like much the, that's true. like the culture of Zappa, which is one of the funny because he didn't do any legal drugs and he didn't drink alcohol basically. But he was obviously nicotine and caffeine are huge. Not a healthy like, man, exactly. Not a, <laughs> not like, and he died of cancer when he was fifty three. You know what I mean? So he was not healthy necessarily. He was a workaholic. Ostensibly, you know? he could have done drugs. <laughs> for all in, yeah he could have done drugs <laughs> he could have got away with it <laughs> I listened to about three hours of Zappa this morning and what struck me is at his core he is so unbelievably critical and harsh of anything involving counterculture he is yeah. like the guys in the balcony and the Muppets <laughs> yes. that is just like commenting on everything and just like 100% cynical the most staunch critic of recorded music, I would say. So for those for those who probably aren't super familiar, Evan touched on it. There's a couple of different um, styles that his music encapsulates, and and certainly what you're talking about, Jamie, um, is the rock stuff, especially uh, the early stuff. If you weren't paying really close attention, you might think, oh, this fits in with. The Velvet Underground. Freak Out, the first album, comes out in 66. This is the same year as Sgt. Pepper's, right? Right before. And actually, right before. there's a bunch of it that supposedly inspired Paul McCartney. He referenced Freak Out a whole bunch of times. There's a horn section on, though, is it? You didn't try to call me. That sounds exactly like the horns on Sgt. Pepper. So not only is it sort of satirical, and not only is it critical, but it's also almost like an instant reaction. It's not like if you heard somebody today doing something that was a little cheeky, but they're doing it in the style of a 60s rock song or something. This is like, while his contemporaries are making this music, mm-hmm. he is then making music that sort of sounds like it, but is a tongue-in-cheek version. Is that fair to say? 
in a sense. I think that there's a degree to which Zappa was always being um, calculated about what he appropriated to get his music out there. So he would take on like, you know, popular styles of the day as a way of drawing people in and then trying to kind of steer those people towards more challenging or avant-garde music by getting them in the door that way. There are certain things he genuinely liked. I mean, I know that he loved Black Sabbath, for example. He, um, he was a huge doo-wop fan. He actually put an entire doo-wop record in like the late 60s, which is not a stylish time to do that at all. If you think about how early Freak Out came out in 1966, in basically the middle of the 60s, it's, he's almost like uh, Bernie Sanders. He was a candidate <laughs> that pushed everyone to be a little freakier when he came out. <laughs> yeah. Something about Zappa is that I think musicians like him. I think if you play, you're way more likely to like Zappa than if you are a listener of records. Mm -hmm. And like, I mean, the Beatles reaction to the Zappa, like you've said, is incredible. I mean, the White Album borrows formats from him mm -hmm. and something like Revolution 9 is definitely something that they heard on a Zappa record. Yeah, I was blown before away that by, came out. I literally didn't have any concept. I knew that Revolution Number no. Nine was like the weird song on the record, the avant-garde song on the record. But then you listen to some of this stuff and you go, "Oh my god, I can't believe that!" Like, it wasn't like quote a Beatles thing. It wasn't mm. like oh the Beatles came up. I mean, this stuff had been going on, and there were even other rock contemporaries doing similar things. I mean, even uh, Happiness is a Warm Gun, the structure of that is definitely influenced by Frank Zappa. The way they play sounds like the mothers. The doo-wop backing vocals that come in the end is absolutely Frank Zappa. They were fans, mm -hmm. definitely. That's a good point, yeah. I think that the connection between Zappa and any of his rock peers is tenuous, but the, he, he certainly had the respect of the other bands. The San Francisco scene that had The Doors and... The Doors were used to hearing on classic rock radio, but they were a pretty out there group. And Jefferson Airplane also, like, these were, even if it wasn't with the same, like, salty tongue that Zappa had, like, at the time, you would have to imagine that these were boundary-pushing groups. You were talking about the distinction of classic rock. I don't think I've ever heard a Frank Zappa song on classic rock radio, personally. He is in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, but beyond that... I don't typically think of Frank Zappa when I think of the music of the 60s or the music of the 70s. You think of the Beatles, the Stones, Zeppelin, you think of all these bands. Frank Zappa doesn't come to mind. I wonder if that's in part because he's sort of relegated as this other. His legacy lives on through his influence in people's musicianship or their playing. You don't hear Frank Zappa often, if ever, unless you're seeking it out. So I would put a different spin on that. I would say that there's a long history of people trying to find ways to bring the avant-garde into the mainstream and make it accessible um, to kind of, I think the idea of high art and low art, personally, I think it's bullshit. I think that, I think part of Zappa's thesis I find interesting is that like on the one hand, he seems to be saying everybody's an idiot. Everyone's a moron. I hate everybody. But on the other side, he's also kind of seems to be saying that because he thinks people could do better. And I think what's interesting about Zappa is I think he actually really thinks that it would be possible to communicate to the general public um, why the more abstract stuff is interesting. It would be possible for the general public to be a little bit smarter. And I think that legacy lives on a lot of, I mean, he was not the first artist to do that. Um, certainly you could look back to someone like Duke Ellington and say, here's somebody who's trying to figure out how to make something that is definitely high art, danceable, accessible, and put it in your living room. You know, um, Many people since then have done that. But I think Zappa is one of the most crucial icons of the 20th century in terms of pushing popular music to be intelligent. 
And I think that legacy lives on actually all over the place. I think everyone, many people who have that kind of kind of tilt to their output at some point listened to Zappa growing up and were encouraged by it, I think. I'm glad you said that because as someone who's not super versed in Zappa, I think I actually might have thought the opposite. So you're sort of saying it's a way of giving a spoonful of sugar with the medicine. It's bringing people into this thing that they might not otherwise be brought into. When I listen to Zappa, again, I'm listening to it out of time, out of context today. It feels sort of alienating to me. Mm. There's a real question of, to the listener, like, do you get it? Do you, mm. are you, are you in on this? Do you understand these, these conceptual things <laughs> you're listening to? I think the spoonful of sugar thing, I think you're right about that. I don't think he was trying to put sugar on anything. I think he was trying to put acid on everything. I think he was, <laughs> I think Zappa wanted to be so corrosive that he would force you to understand. I mean, he definitely was the kind of person who was being almost mischievous and almost a little bit mean. He wanted to, he wanted to put something that you couldn't handle listening to in your ear. He wanted you to listen to a nice pop song and then suddenly there's a stab of noise. Right. You know, like, ouch. Like, right. and, and he would have probably been like gleeful. Like, oh, <laughs> I got him. You know, like, like I forced someone to listen to something that hurt them. You know, <laughs> I think he was a little bit misanthropic, not sociopathic, but a little bit misan- misanthropic. So we've, we've already established Evan is a big Zappa fan. I would say that I'm not a Zappa fan. The way I feel about it is it is interesting. It, I would even go so far as to say this stuff is fascinating, but it is not enjoyable. Hmm. Is that fair? It's not something I could imagine putting on for pleasure. Well, here's like full, uh, you know, full honesty is that I got into Zappa when I was like 12 or 13. And I also liked Weird Al Yankovic when I was 12 or 13. You know, I think to a certain degree, and this is more true of baby boomers than it is true of people our age. You actually find tons of baby boomers who are, who are like into classic rock who are like, yeah, I love Zappa. And they'll like sing that song called uh, Don't Eat the Yellow Snow or something mm-hmm. like that. You know, it's very, he, he did all this kind of purposefully juvenile stuff. And I love that stuff when I was 13 because you listen to Weird Al and it's ultimately kind of G rated. You pull up Bobby Brown Goes Down and it's basically a takedown of exactly the kind of jock that's picking on you and envisioning him basically getting raped, which is not, it's not, it's like not okay, you know, but so we can also say that some of this hasn't aged great. <laughs> no, oh, well, yeah. especially he, listen, he really hasn't in a lot of ways. He really hasn't in a lot <laughs> yeah. of ways. He was he was part of a he was part of a perspective and earlier. I think it's part of the 1960s. Actually, he's more libertarian. He's more he's more of the angle that's like um, everybody's horrible. Everything is terrible. So you know, put it all on the table and like you would you would assume that you understood that he knew it was terrible and he wouldn't put any trigger warnings on any of it. Right. And there's something to be said for that. But it also like in a time period where people are trying to make sure and he's well, he's part Arab, but he's mostly white. You know, he's a white guy. So, yes, that stuff does not age. It would be very it would be very easy to put Frank Zappa in the category of the smug white man who is uh, telling everyone what to do and what they should you know, get into. (laughs) I feel halfway on his attitude. On the one hand, I, I like the critical nature of Frank Zappa. And there's something I really appreciate about his the just the pervasive attitudes in his music, which is to question everything mm-hmm. that any kind of popular opinion is totally fallible and that you should not take anything seriously because anyone tells you to. But then on the other hand, I'm not as cynical as him. Mm-hmm. As you guys were talking, I was like, is Zappa's attitude in line with punk? And on some level, I think it is yes. because he is a heel and punk really exploited 
the heel as a protagonist, someone like Johnny Rotten or Jello Biafra, I bet both these guys were into Frank Zappa records. You also want you to know, make you, sound that would hurt somebody's ears. Right, you know, right. like being punishing. Yeah. See, in if you go to Brooklyn DIY shows, I'd say there's like a 20 or 30% of the bands that are punishing, meaning they use volume and dissonance to hurt their audience. And some people want to get heard in some sort of like BDSM play out in the audience where it's like, I am not one of these people. I do not want to get punished by noise or sound necessarily. When I go to a show, I have been punished. I've enjoyed it. Even I've even liked a band while they hurt me, but Zappa is not light on his audience at all. And some people like it. That being said, I think the baby boomers don't see it that way at all. I don't think that our parents' generation necessarily even Think of it the way that you think of it. I think that they were teenagers who smoked pot to like Frank Zappa records and laughed at the funny songs Mm -hmm. and then maybe would put on Cheech and Chong record or maybe would put on a Santana record afterwards. I don't think that I think that in a way I think that it's funny in a way by participating in mainstream music, he must have accepted that most of his audience lost his original point which is what happens when you put out mainstream records. I also think that over time, his perspective shifted. I think there's this big thing that happened. I mean, he, Zappa was in a lot of ways a working class guy. You know, he, his father was constantly traveling from town to town. Like he really didn't have any like stability when he was growing up. He didn't really have money. And he got, he got famous when he was like, I don't know, 26, 27. Whereas like all the other people got famous at 20 back then. Like he had a full, like he had a marriage and a child already going by the time all that was going. He needed to make money. You know, and I think there's a degree to which Zappa realized, like, this stuff's going to make me money. I can actually be a musician. And then, t- especially toward the end of his career, he was using those kinds of records to fund his classical work. And he was, in his later life, like, putting out really challenging classical compositions without even a, without even a shred of accessibility to them. Like, he was, he was hiring orchestras. He was experimenting with MIDI and electronic music in the 80s. And I think that at that point, he did become completely cynical. He was just like, I'm going to put these records out. They're going to bring an income for my family. And I'm going to be able to afford to do these projects, and that's what he cared about. You know, I want to I want to touch on again the similarities or differences between what Zappa was doing and what would later be punk rock, because even though there is that similarity of that punishing nature as you described it, Jamie, obviously in punk it's done through sheer volume, aggression, speed, things like that, and none of that is actually particularly present in Zappa's stuff. As Evan mentioned before, it's more about like trickery. It's like kind mm-hmm. of a wink and and it's these sort of mischievous attitudes, whether it's jarring changes in the song of mm-hmm. tempo or instruments, or you, you can be listening to something that's an orchestra and then a second later it's a surf rock song and it, it's, it's more through humor. The other big difference though, I would say is because so much of punk rock uh, is about rules and ethics and ideals. A lot of that is tied up in pure emotion and feeling and guts over intelligence or thoughtfulness. Mm. And Zappa is notorious for, as you said, much of his material, uh, he didn't even necessarily play on. He would hire an orchestra or players and he would have charts. He would have music written out. He would even have music written out for uh, the players in his rock bands. And I can't think of anything further from punk. So they're getting, they're sort of achieving the same thing and going about it in completely different ways. And this is my own feeling about this, but I wonder if something is even really truly rock music if you have session players playing to sheet music. 
I wonder, in my mind, rock music has to be the complete opposite of that. And I don't, I, this may be a different thing. You, you may have touched on a, a difference in our definition of rock and roll. I think that there's nothing more rock and roll than Phil Spector. And I think that Zappa is kind of like taking the Phil Spector wall of sound and just applying it in its most punishing and weird ways. Yeah. I don't think there's anything wrong with the thing that you said. I think what you're touching on is, is Frank Zappa passionate on record? Because he sounds like he's not. His vo- his, the way he sings is kind of like, well, I'm here on the track and here I am singing to you or whatever. I don't think I like a lot of the stuff after the mothers of invention. It's interesting. He found a bunch of long haired guys who did do drugs and just like, <laughs> like use them as a weapon. Basically <laughs> he appropriated elements of the rock scene that he was making fun of. He, he sounds like a real prick. Like when I talk <laughs> about this, cause Annie used to tape his band when they were stoned and all the silly <laughs> things that they said, and then later use it for humor purposes yeah, no, very he, dark and dry you in, know in that respect he was he was a real prick but i think well okay <laughs> I, you guys both just said something really interesting um i want to address in the whole punk thing and and the cerebral thing i think that punk is in some way is a way of kind of reducing rock and roll to its most basic elements and a lot of the music that comes i mean let's be honest a lot of the underground rock music ever since punk was invented has been stuck in this idea that rock is a more limited enterprise because because of that kind of meat and potatoes kind of basis. And the generation of the 60s, including most of Zappa's peers, were not, like Jamie said, they were not as stuck on this idea that rock is a fixed thing. Rock was still developing. But what I think is interesting was that I, I think he was taking up 60s counterculture on its, on its message, actually, and saying, well, if you're actually going to question society completely, because to, to us now, like an, a long-haired kid walking around smoking weed and listening to like jam band music is not revolutionary. At the time though, it was supposed to be so offensive to mainstream America that it was. So I think he was saying, if that's really what you're about, well, let's go all the way with this, huh? Like you guys are also being conformist. I mean, I think that on one level, there's some part of him that is a party pooper on the 1960s. <laughs> Not to say that that's bad or makes unlistenable records, but it is a negative way of thinking. I mean, actually, Frank Zappa has a really good song on his first record about the civil rights movement called Trouble Every Day. And he actually has probably the best line I've ever heard a white songwriter say about it, which is, it's like, I know that I ain't black, but there's some days where I really wish I wasn't white. And that's a pretty brave thing to say. And that's like a rare genuine moment that he shows on record when necessary so he doesn't he's not shitting all over it all the time but i think since the commercialization of rock and roll which would be essentially day one since that since that day there has been a push push and pull is like is this outsider music are we selling things zappa certainly cares about this more than any of his the rest of his peers like there's something about that hypocrisy of rock and roll as a commercial thing that has been a conversation that m- maybe begins with him. I heard a really good phrase once to use uh, used to describe glam rock. I think it was in reference to either T-Rex or David Bowie, where it said that one of the themes of glam rock is an apolitical revolution, meaning mm-hmm. we're using some of the language of fringe politics and revolution to kind of get people pumped almost in the way that now you would think of like 
what do you listen to when you work out of the gym on headphones? Like, like what, how do people listen to music now? It's like, you think about 1973 and, uh, you know, it's like, uh, records, like there's a riot going on fresh by Sly Stone comes out. These records are absolutely in reaction to the political climate in every way and have no artifice about what they mean and what they're talking about, even if they're being poetic. Right. So it's like, these records come out now and now are the soundtrack to like white people working out at a gym. Right. <laughs> so it's like, what, you know, what, what, what does this stuff mean? And I think that Zappa must've saw the writing on the wall about like, how would we uh, contextualize this recorded music? However, these, most of these records don't stand up to some records that maybe have like a bullshit notion of revolution. Sometimes maybe the record that is less genuine means more than the critic who's has full commitment to their idea. But Frank Zappa, whatever you want to say about him, whether you like his music or not, he had an absolute commitment to his ethos. Totally. And that has aged well. I want to challenge a notion that you just brought up though. I think that Zappa is in the context you're putting it, He's writing these really thought out, often abstract pieces. They have overtly political messages or overtly anti-authoritarian messages. I don't think that that necessarily has anything to do with the meaning they ultimately convey. I think the meaning a song conveys is generated by the listener, not by the mm. artist. And to think that you as an artist, well, if I write a song that's this strange or this angry or this political, that it will somehow hold greater meaning than a song that you might listen to. Say, oh, that's a, that's a song you listen to at the gym. That's a pop song. Mm. Throughout history, it is split 50-50. It's a, it's a total luck of the draw. A song that I might listen to as a throwaway pop song, maybe it's something like Madonna or the village people could have been somebody else's sexual awakening could have been the theme to a, a protest. They were at a song. Like sometimes it has nothing to do with the original intent. A song like, um, all right by Kendrick Lamar. It's uh, vaguely political a little bit, but it's not overt. It became a rallying cry for the black lives matter movement. He didn't write it for that purpose. He didn't write it with that intent. And I think sometimes it's a little bit presumptuous of an artist, of a songwriter to say, well, if I just write this song in a certain way, it will be held up for years to come in exactly the mold. I wish it to be. Yeah. I think it's kind of like the against me dilemma, actually. Like it's a similar analog. There's a lot of, a lot of punk from the George W. Bush era when we were all protesting, we were teenagers, that was so committed to his ideology that it kind of sometimes, and I, I do respect against me, but sometimes dropped the songwriting component. They're like, this is the message. Mm -hmm. And you should listen to the message because you should agree with us. Mm -hmm. And I think Zappa has the same problem. And I think that's completely true. I think there's also the issue of the mid-20th century versus the late 20th century. Zappa is a mid-20th century person. He is outdated actually in a lot of ways, but he's kind of the grown up in the room. He's kind of the old man in the room at the time. He's thinking like a mid 20th century modernist, which is that like on some level, popular music is, he's not quite in this camp, but like degen it's degenerate. Beneath him. It's degenerate. Like you mentioned the negativity or the critical streak um, in the songwriting of Frank Zappa. A lot of it is about what he's against or what he's satirizing. 
And Evan, you also mentioned that it's not all that. When I listen to it, that is basically what I hear. I hear a lot of like complaints, a lot of like <laughs> criticisms. If you had to to name a few, what's something that he articulates that he is for? Uh, individualism. And actually, in some ways, an outdated kind of way. I almost feel like he, he's too credulous toward the idea of the founding fathers or something. Like, no, I mean, I don't think literally, I don't think literally, but there's this sense of like the idea that the American ethic is to be an individual. He was a libertarian in most respects. I mean, he called them closet anarchists, so he wasn't actually a libertarian, but yeah, he, he was, an, he was anti-conformity. So therefore he was pro people being as unique as they could possibly be. He was in favor of using your intellect to a fault over your emotions, but he was in favor of that. Um, yeah, I think he just believed everybody could be a little smarter than they were and was in favor of them doing that, but lacked the sort of tact or the grace to encourage them to do that rather than just browbeat them sometimes. I think that was sort of part of what was going on there. Jamie, I think you made the criticism that you could say, this music lacks for passion, possibly. And I would argue, to my mind, there's a direct correlation between that and perfectionism. And in terms of my tastes, there is nothing... I hate more than perfectionist rock music. Those two things are at odds with one another. I would much rather listen to incredibly passionate music played by wild musicians playing from the gut and have it be all over the place, have it be out of tune, noisy, what have you, but be full of life and gusto than to listen to anything where everything is just so. And Zappa's a notorious perfectionist and... I think when you listen to some of the more avant-garde stuff or the classical pieces, that lends itself much better to those styles. We're used to hearing orchestras play perfectly or play beautifully. We're not used to hearing rock music where everything is is just so. And that is a real turnoff to me. Yeah, I think as somebody who has the same attitude as you do about most of the rock and, rock and roll music I listen to, it's like, that is a big problem for me as a Zappa fan too. I don't, believe in perfectionist rock music at all but it's just part of it's part of the equation it's something that in most cases i don't overlook and for some reason with zappa i do (laughs) but i think it's because there's so much more going on there that's worth coming to the table for i'll take that one step further and say that when something does become that conceptual you've already outlined the the positives of it what it can do for a listener but i would argue the negative of it is it it zaps it of any sort of emotional intimacy. You know what I'm saying? It it lacks something that connects with a listener on a genuine emotional level. You said it. (laughs) You said it because most of rock and roll is about love. Some of it that isn't about love is about having fun some of it that isn't about having fun is about sticking it to the man, right? But he doesn't even really sing about sticking it to the man. Let's be, let's <laughs> oh, no, be he does, I actually. Mean, it's when I, when I say sticking it to the man, I mean, I'm saying something like, we're not going to take it by Twisted Sister. It's angry. He's not like angry in the direct way because this is not a passion play. 
I think his you message know. is you are the man and get your head out of your ass. I think is kind of what is <laughs> kind of what he's really trying to say, which is something nobody. Man, I, just, I just got so angry when you said that. <laughs> uh, fuck you, Zappa, you white asshole. <laughs> no, but that's exactly what he's saying: is you're a bunch of white hippies doing this shit, and you're the children of the same privileged people that you're hating on right now, and you're going to grow up to be just like them. And he was completely right. And I think that's. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like in hindsight, that's exactly what happened, right? The 80s happened and all of those former hippies went and joined Wall Street and made a shit ton of money if they were privileged enough to do so. So I'm just going to put forward that like, that's something that nobody ever wants to hear ever, but it's essential. Like if you're so focused on, you know, sticking it to the man, check yourself for a second. And I think that's what Zappa was trying to say during, I think, arguably the best part of his career in the late 60s was, check yourself, kid, you know? Why then is that appealing to the listener? Like Jamie just said, that's he's like, you made problem. me so mad. <laughs> like, what, what, what makes someone absorb everything you just said and say, I'm coming back for more? When it's good, it's dark humor. I like Zappa. I'm a, I just don't listen to a lot of Frank Zappa. The most Zappa I ever listened to was when we met, <laughs> Evan and I. It's not something you want to go through all the time, but we're only in it for the money. One of the best records in the 60s. Absolutely. When he's good, and, and I'm going to say Zappa and the Mothers, too. Yes. Because when he ditched the Mothers... He ditched a lot of the things that make someone who want to listen to rock bands like myself yeah. want to listen to him, even to the point where his 80s stuff, to me, is just should go with Dr. Demento and not with rock music. <laughs> the sloppiness of the original Mothers, despite... Because Zappo didn't have the budget to pay perfect musicians in the early days. He had all these kind of hippie misfits and actually former greasers. What I love about Zappa is he pulled all these old greasers out of the gutter who are like the most out of style people possible. Like these, one of these guys is called Motorhead, right? Yeah. yeah. And like, um, and also to his credit, like he really embraced like the Mexican side of LA and was like, here, here's all these, all these Mexican guys that you're not including in the scene. Like, you know, who are still into fixing their cars. You know, he, he was definitely cool in that respect too, but it was, it was the sloppiness. It was the sloppiness of that original ensemble that lent some kind of heart to those early records, you know? And when he got, the quote-unquote better musicians, I agree with Jamie, it got less interesting. Let's go into that sort of later, more overt comedy. So this is stuff that I was not super aware of until I dug into it. But his Jewish top, American princess. His top... <laughs> his only charting songs are those 80s, what I would argue seem like novelty songs now. Uh, Dance and Fool and Valley Girl. And I'd never heard these songs before. They were before our time. I went back and listened to them. I wonder what you guys think about where the line is in terms of satire. Not right and wrong, but effective and ineffective. Because when I listen to those, again, this is modern day, it's out of context. But those songs didn't feel particularly clever to me. They felt like low blows. They felt easy and... I don't know. It felt like for someone who's supposed to be so as high-minded as Frank Zappa is, as conceptual it is, as it is, to write a whole song that's basically saying like, oh, you know, girls who talk like this, they must be real stupid. <laughs> that's the whole song. I mean, that's the entire song. Yeah. I wonder what Kathleen Hanna would say about that song, yeah. Valley Girl. I, hindsight's twenty twenty. We talk about this all yeah. the time on the show, and I'm not trying to say, oh, he's wrong. It, it was a different time. Also, defending that song, it's like, that's his teenage daughter doing most of it. And I think to some degree, it's like he's got a 13-year-old kid who's going to school with all these girls. I mean, to me, it sounds like Moon Unit Zappa venting. 
But do you know what I'm saying? Like, I don't know. I think there's satire that has longevity mm-hmm. and there's satire that doesn't. And honestly, you know what I thought of when I heard Valley Girl was I thought of uh, Sir Mix-a-Lot. I third of, thought yeah, of yeah. Uh, Baby Got Back, yeah. which, uh, yeah. you know, is a funny song. It has it is problematic, but is also stood the test of time. People still listen to it. But it's not about taste as much as it is about just like, what's the point, really? I agree with you completely, but I think it is one of these things where it's um kind of an indignity of Frank Zappa that like if you were to Google him or something, the first two songs that would come up were like total throwaway songs. Yeah. But that's kind of how the music industry works, I guess, is that like the most um common denominator version of Frank Zappa is the one that would like make it on the radio. But it is pretty uncool. I think that Evan gave me We're Only In It For The Money. And I think that that is an example of a time where I learned about the expansive qualities of what a rock record could be. This was a real statement. And I think when you reduce Zappa to the really good parts of him, I think he is greatest of all time. But I, I, don't, I don't think that accounts for most of his career. Yeah. I also think that is Zappa woke by today's standards? Does his attitude represent the truly free, forward-thinking version of rock music, like the utopian ideals of rock music? No, I think there's some issues yeah. with his critical attitude to the point where you would be like, right now, if Zappa came out, it'd be like, why is this white guy telling me that I'm wrong about everything? Why am I being criticized? Because that's what people are more sensitive now. You but know? think but think about what you're laying out. And Evan, you, you said it earlier. Let's say one of the main tenets of what Zappa is trying to get across is you can be better, listener. Listener, you can be smarter. The flip side of that means Zappa is the arbiter of who is smart, of who is expressing themselves correctly. So now who's the man? You mentioned Kathleen Hanna. There's a whole song about right or wrong, the way you're speaking and the way you're presenting yourself, you must be stupid and you should be better than that. Then why is the, then there's a reaction many, many years later, not necessarily having anything to do with Frank Zappa, of young women who maybe older white men would see and think these things about, think the same things you're hearing in a song like Valley Girl, and they're saying, no, we are smart, we have our own style, we have our own takes on things. So it's admirable to say I expect more from the music listening audience. But if you take it too far, you know, you're being sort of a fascist. I was about to use the word fascist <laughs> because <laughs> yeah, this, this is something that we're not comfortable with anymore. This is a political thing. This is not about music. Mm-hmm. Is that I think the previous generation was comfortable being authoritarian on the left. In this day and age, we demand flexibility on when we we take an extreme view it's because we're trying to include everyone but i think now it's that if you're on the left you got to include everyone i agree with this 100 percent. i think that zappa and the same thing as think for yourself everyone else in a rock band in the 60s was probably like well i'm on the left whether they had a good reason for it not so he was saying think for yourself don't just jump to the left because it exists, you know. But he was also the boss man. 
He was in charge. Mm-hmm. He was the boss man of a band. And like you said in the beginning, he was trying to feed his family mm-hmm. and, you know, make money so he oh, could. Yeah. He was capitalist. You know, yeah, Zappo, he, yeah, he had no problem with money. And that's something that divides from a lot of the left. Let's go back to the hits too, Jamie, because you made an interesting point in saying that it's no coincidence that his his biggest broad mainstream hits are perhaps the dumbest, for lack of a better term. I wonder if that is a truism for all rock music, for all avant-garde music, for all music that maybe attempts to bring in something conceptual. Is it possible that that's always going to be at odds with popularity, that accessibility plays maybe the most important role in disseminating music widely and having a legacy, perhaps? And then also, how does that impact who's the GOAT? Because if your music doesn't reach a certain threshold of popularity, how can you really be the greatest if no one's, if no one or a very small amount of people are really exposed to your music and it's really resonating? Here's a, I'll make an argument for Zappa being among the GOAT, as you would say. <laughs> <laughs> the GOAT, the greatest of all time. I think that he makes successfully really strong argument that somebody who, who is as daring as humanly possible and pushes as many boundaries as humanly possible, right or wrong, and builds as huge a career as he did, because Zappa is more of a household name to a certain generation, arguably, than Sonic Youth is. Sure. It's kind of ridiculous that he got that far doing what he did. He deserves to be on that list because his perspective is one of the most unique of the 20th century, of, of all the public figures we have, and his talent. I mean, his even if it was mostly cerebral, it's kind of like beyond, you know, the, the level of intellect that this person had artistically. Forget how he would, maybe you could say, talk down to people politically. In terms of what he did on paper as a composer, this person, the accomplishment of his career actually is kind of massive. That, 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 that's a very fair point. Now, and that covers the, the, the goat aspect of it, but I ask you also, is there something kind of inherently backwards about the fact that maybe... Something that is truly high-minded will never really have the popularity it deserves because it may be the most important thing that there is a, a strong element of accessibility so that it reaches people's ears. Zap is not a pop musician. It's not pop. I think that the 60s and some of the 70s stuff belongs in the classic rock canon because he came up alongside something like The Doors and Pink Floyd, and shares a lot of the same fans. But it's not pop music. There are moments where an absolutely intellectual statement and an absolutely popular statement collide, and something that has intellectual value and kind of a pleasing value at the same time becomes a hit. There are a few times in music where that happens. I think you said something really good earlier is that something that could be absolutely the most manufactured corporate thing could become very important, like the idea of Madonna's Into the Groove being a a real anthem of individuality and self-expression, whereas, you know, to... Me as a 14-year-old, oh, that's a corporate piece of shit. You know what I mean? (laughs) I don't feel that way anymore. But since Zappa wasn't a pop musician, it makes sense that his stupidest song is his most popular song because he was never really barking up that tree. It'd be one thing if he tried to write a song like Let It Be. Because like Let It Be, for example, you could call this a dumb song, but in the end, 
McCartney is deep. Sorry. <laughs> no, but yeah, but McCartney. I used to think it was dumb, and now I don't. It's That's deep, the difference it's between deep as young fuck. and old. Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, like something like "Let It Be" is a song that could make anyone cry, and can kind of like bring up a base emotional response. I remember seeing Paul McCartney with my parents. I was uh, there. John was there. <laughs> I've seen Paul McCartney once, and John was there, and my parents were there. Thanks for that and plus one. <laughs> it was kind of incredible because I, my parents like, are not emotional music listeners, but watching them react to Paul McCartney playing Let It Be made me like the song because they had such an emotional reaction because they had such a conduit the rest of their lives. You know, and they're baby boomers. They're like, you know, they, they represent that generation. Zap is the other thing because it's not about love. Zap is really unromantic rock music, which is why I never listen to it because I pretty much only want to listen to <laughs> romantic music. I don't really want to listen to music that like uh, doesn't jut up a emotional response. I think you're right. But even outside of romance, I think it has more to do with the aspect of of being a control freak because he's not only putting music out there and saying very explicitly, here's what this song is about or what this album's about. He's also saying it's so specific that here's how it will exist forevermore. Here's how it's going to be heard. Whereas other musicians, whether it's romantic or whether it's just somebody writing a song that's a little bit more abstract, that second part isn't included. You let it out there into the world and you don't know how it's going to be received. You don't know that somebody's going to hear it and say, oh, this song might mean this or this song speaks to me in this way. You lose quite a bit of that with the music of Frank Zappa because it's so dictated on exactly what he's saying. Yeah. Yeah, and if you listen to a lot of Frank Zappa in one particular day, you wind up feeling kind of dead inside. To be honest. <laughs> no, and I say this as a fan of Frank Zappa. Like, like a certain quantity of Zappa is really is really yeah. stimulating and interesting. But I mean, I remember <laughs> buying Joe's Garage. <laughs> I bought Joe's Garage when I was fourteen or fifteen, right? And I brought it home. Like, oh, this is going to be great. This is one of his funnier records. And that is a fucking dark record and it's pun it's it's perspective on humanity is punishing and it gets really technical musically in the middle of it and by the end of it you feel violated i think that he was responsible for the probably the three other weirdest protagonists in rock music alice cooper tom waits and captain beefheart all getting signed no one would assign these guys th today if they were thinking about yeah, you know, well, Alice Cooper had sales potential because he was a shock rocker in the early glam rock era, right? To a degree. Yeah, but that didn't but exist yet. His, his show did yeah. not exist. Yeah, and Zap is the kind of guy you know? who would say, "Oh, you're going to chop your head off on stage with a big guillotine." Great, I like that. You know, like, <laughs> and he was that kind of influence in the industry. He was perverse. Um, I mean, Zappa secretly is an early metalhead. He loved the Black Sabbath. Smoke on the Water is about a Zappa gig where the whole place caught on fire. And so he hired so Joe you, Satriani, right? Yeah, he was yeah. he was playing with Deep Purple on the same bill. He's and responsible for he, Joe Satriani. Well, that's true, that's a, <laughs> but but he didn't he didn't he he was a metalhead man. There's and, a story about him and Sabbath. Sabbath were in America, and Zappa wanted them to come record with him, so they would have made a record, but Sabbath didn't show up because they were so intimidated to be in a room <laughs> with Frank Zappa, yeah. who is like the boss, yeah. that they didn't go. Yeah. So in an alternate universe, they could have made probably the most far out record of that year. <laughs> I don't know. Do we have time for this? The censorship debate. 
Right. So in the mid 80s, there was that whole uh, Tipper Gore parental. Go- what is it? PMRC. By the time we were children, it was like a foregone conclusion there were going to be parental guidance labels on, on records. But in the 80s, they were talking about potentially doing what they do with movies where there's actually like G, PG, PG 13 R, that kind of shit going on. And there was nothing of the sort. And this is the time, and getting back to how Zappa was metalhead, right? A lot of what was being called out was metal or let's say like Prince when Prince yeah, like talks about Dar- R&B, like yeah. Darling Nikki or something Early like that. Right. Stuff, and yeah. Darling Nikki, for those who don't know, is literally the reason that the PR- PMRC was begun because Tipper Gore was so scandalized by f- hearing her daughter mm-hmm. listening to Darling Nikki by Prince. Right. right. And Zappa made an extremely public stand, went around on talk shows for like a year, testified before Congress. And it was in some ways... And looking back on it, I think in some ways he wasn't as articulate as other people because he was being a little bit immature, right? He could have had a little more decorum in how he handled himself in the situation. But <laughs> no, but I mean, for, you know, for a 45 year old, you know, he this is 45. this is the same man who is, yeah. uh, you know, depicted on the toilet and all these, and all these posters. Zappa, and people's Zappa can room, be a little, know? we all know Zappa can be a little sophomoric, right? But he took this really courageous stand against the idea of censorship. And once again, the guy is kind of a libertarian. But he really believes that it is up to you to be smart enough to read between the lines. It is up to you as a parent to be engaged enough that you make decisions about this stuff and talk to your children rationally as opposed to blocking what they can access. He was like, as a parent myself, if you're having problems with this, it's because you're not educating your your children about sex, you know? And he made, and he was, I think he resonated with a lot of people because he stood up during Reagan and said, you know, social conservatism is bullshit. You just make people more ignorant, more scared, more trapped. And I think that that's something I really respect him for. You know, he used his public position um, to fight a very specific battle that meant something to him personally um, that I think to this day is still a really relevant question. A hundred percent. And yet to your point, I mean, maybe it is a little sophomoric, but I, I would say that I find his um, the footage of him testifying before Congress riveting. And, and maybe mm. it's part of his his way where he's kind of humorous. Um, he calls them really, assholes. He's basically. very <laughs> cutting. Oh, it's really cutting. It is riveting stuff. It's yeah. so, it's so interesting to watch. Um, and like you said, there's a lot of great clips of him on um, talk shows and whatnot. I think it's something really admirable. Um, you need a role model that reminds you that there's options. You know what I mean? I think one of the, sure. the, the great things about countercultural countercultural movements through pop music in the late 20th century was it gave a lot of people options. It was like, I don't see any of this anywhere near anywhere near me or anywhere around me. But because this person is so publicly presented, like I actually realize this is not an option for me. And I think Zappa, for me, was really valuable in that respect. There's one thing I want to say, and I want to see what you guys think about this. Mm-hmm. I think the absolute worst part of Zappa's legacy is giving rise to the fame and popularity of Steve Vai who was <laughs> a guitar player with Zappa in his later years and if you and if if I say the word Steve Vai and you're listening and you know who I'm describing it's because you bought a guitar magazine between the years of 1985 <laughs> and 2005. I've been I a signature model, oh, man. I don't know what happened, but somehow, somewhere along the way, this guy got canonized as like the ultimate guitar virtuoso. He has segment after, and, and the only place I've ever seen him is in guitar magazines, but boy, is he in there every month. And if you listen to any of this guy's music, it is the worst thing I have ever heard in my life. It is unlistenable. It is the cheesiest aspects of metal 
put together with smooth jazz. Yeah. Yeah. It is a painful listen. And, and I tried really hard to like it because I liked Zappa. And I, and I have to admit that, no, I really, I really can't get into it either. It's one of the worst things. The um, perpetuation of, uh, let's call it shreditude. Um, <laughs> I mean, to me, it seems like someone writing themselves into a wall where you're writing things that are so difficult. You need kind of like the most like audaciously technical musicians available kind of starts to lose the script of like the beauty or importance of music to the listener, you know, cause people love Steve Vai, but it's like mostly other guitar players, Yep. Yeah. you know, and even a lot of Zappa stuff is mostly appreciated by people. I mean, he is partially responsible for the jam band culture of the stuff that exists today. What do you think a, like if Zappa was alive, what would he be making in today's context? Because he actually really rolled at the times, right? He was constantly evolving. He embraced MIDI when he was like in his 40s, right? Um, the second thing is like, you know, what do you think he'd like? I mean, you mentioned the MIDI stuff and I bet he we would be hearing Frank Zappa's version of trap music, of mumble rap, of these things that are like heavy electronic um, man, pieces that, okay. in pop culture. If you listen to nothing else and you listen to this podcast, listen to Wind Up Working in a Gas Station from 1976. It's like a matchup <laughs> of punk and disco. We'll put it on our playlist. And it is, it, it winds up like in this territory where it almost sounds like a dance record from the past decade. I, w- I also wouldn't be surprised to if he had at some point made music that ended up uh, sounding like what we have from Aphex Twin, where it's like, Parts of it feel like pop dance music and parts of it feel Slightly like very, punishing elements, yeah, yeah. very strange and difficult to listen to. It, Zap is a fringe thing for our generation. Mm-hmm. But as we we're talking about this, I do realize that there are um, musicians in our periphery that are full on executors of the Zappa style of combining dark humor, high minded music theory, punishing elements and rock elements it made me think of zebu mm-hmm. made me think of no one and somebody's made me think of old table mm-hmm. whereas there's a sort of like certain of our peers that are able to be kind of rock auteurs without having much concern for if anyone is having a good time necessarily <laughs> just the idea that you can express yourself in certain ways with a rock group that are uh musically expansive but then also ridiculous mm-hmm. And that is a great attitude, and I actually love seeing that in music today because especially there's so much pressure to be pleasing and inclusive. <laughs> I think that that attitude that Zappa has like also should live. Yeah. And I, it was cool that I could think of three groups yeah. that are brilliant and not appreciated that wave that flag, and the flag should still exist. And we should definitely, yeah. Yeah. We should definitely keep that flag going even if it alienates people because rock and roll was supposed Elvis, Elvis alienated people and then the Beatles alienated people. And there's an ironic flip side to this, which is that the exact opposite side of Zappa's career is actually currently in some ways flowering flying Lotus. Oh yeah, sure. I didn't and, think of that. We think this is, I think this is like Zappa's wet dream. This is like jazz fusion becoming pop popularly appreciated. It's really technical, technical and kind of finicky, but it's extremely catchy. You're 100% like, I right. I love Flying Lotus, yeah. you know? And they also both have a sort of multimedia aspect to what they do. Flying Lotus has a tour right now, Flying yeah. Lotus in 3D, and Zappa has a, there's a, he had always written about holograms, and he has a hologram yeah. tour now. There's, mm-hmm. both of them made films. Yeah. I'd never seen that connection, but you're absolutely right. There's a real through line there. This has been awesome. Yes, um, 
Evan, tell people about the stuff you're working on now. I put out a record last year made up of gamelan samples, live gamelan recordings mixed with black metal noise and um, and field recordings too. I'm I'm going my own thing relating to what Zappa does is is the same idea of how can you take things that are maybe less accept, accessible to people and find a way to make them listenable. And that is my mission and my goal. And if you want to hear it, the last release is called Sekar Demen and it's on my website. I enjoy Sekar Demen a lot more than any Zappa record. <laughs> and <laughs> I probably you. listen to it more frequently than Zappa. <laughs> so definitely check it out. Grounddemons.org is the site, right? Yes. Okay. Or just look at Bandcamp for Sekar Demen. Thanks so much for joining us. John is now going to share his choice for a third-party GOAT candidate. And this is a record that John turned me on to in high school that I have loved forever. And truly, I don't know if uh, most of our peers have any idea about it. What's the record, John? Tell us the about it. The record is Catholic Boy by Jim Carroll Band. And I think if people know Jim Carroll, they either know him as a writer or a poet. They might know The Basketball Diaries, which went on to become a popular film with a very young Leonardo DiCaprio starring in it. Uh, or they may know the song People Who Died, which is on uh, Catholic Boy. And absolutely is a great song. The album as a whole, the band as a whole, I feel like maybe gets relegated to kind of one-hit wonder status, probably because of that. It's a song that gets covered a lot. And we've covered it in the past of the Brooklyn What. It's super fun. We must have played it at least 20 or 30 times on it's, stage. It's a classic Never song. Never fail cover. <laughs> and it's fun, and you get the whole audience into it. Um, but the album as a whole is just... It's really incredible. The album was released in 1980. So, and Jim Carroll is a, a classic New York fixture. He's there as part of the scene at Max's Kansas City. And there's definitely a really strong Velvet Underground vibe running through this, especially in the lyrics. Um, I would say if you have any appreciation for the lyrics of Blue Reed, you should definitely get into this stuff. And then it's also, it comes together with a sort of late 70s CBGB sensibility. And it even goes as far as to sort of starting to predict some of the new wave stuff that would become even more popular in the years to come. There's moments on it that almost sound like The Pretenders or like Elvis Costello. Uh, but I think a lot of the time, maybe the reason that the album was not as big as a lot of these other contemporaries is because Jim Carroll is not your classic great singer he's more of a talker it's much closer to a lou reed or even to some of the talkier mick jagger stuff but it doesn't lack for fun or edge uh it's a great album to sing along to and the lyrics are hilarious if you have any love or affection for sort of satire about young people satire about cool hip culture or satire about organized religion it's ju you just can't do better than to listen to this record. And even has some cool players on it. Bobby Keys from the Stones plays sax on the record. There's some amazing guitar work on it. Um, and I feel like it's a really like a, a lost piece of the puzzle when people talk about Patti Smith, television, uh, Richard Hell. This is somebody who I really think belongs in that conversation. And this album is front to back great. So please do yourself a favor and listen to Catholic Boy by Jim Carroll Band. This has been What Is Goat. I'm John Severin Napolillo. I'm Jamie Fry. Thank you.